you would get a Bible out, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1 is where we'll begin uh, this period of our study, uh, this period of study in our worship, and I uh, want to encourage you to turn your Bible over to that place. 2 Peter chapter 1, we're going to be talking about the Bible in our time this morning, and so it would be good for you to have a Bible open. I think that would help you as you follow along uh, to the lesson. Good to see that we have a number of visitors with us. Thank you so much for being here. We always want to encourage you, always want to let you know how glad we are to have you and we always want to offer ourselves that if there's anything that we can help you to do to be right with God or anything you'd like to know about what we're doing, uh, we'd just love to talk to you more. So please stick around for a little bit and let us get to know you after our worship concludes. 2 Peter chapter 1, I want to begin by reading verse 21. 2 Peter 1 verse 21, the text says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible claims to be from God. That is the claim in this verse. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And because the Bible claims to be from God, and because we live in a scientific age, that is a temptation for many people to try to falsify that premise. To say, well, if the Bible really is from God, then it should always stand up to every test. And so many people in our time, try to find ways that the Bible contradicts itself or errors that they find in the Bible. I spent a lot of time this week looking through lists online of supposed errors and contradictions in the Bible. But it seems to me that that's a poor approach to this issue. It seems to me that if the Bible claims to be from God, we should not only talk about some of these areas that are maybe difficult or maybe need to be reconciled or worked on, but that we also need to recognize the broader picture, that there is an amazing unity in the Bible, that the Bible fits together very well, so well, in fact, that it seems to me it needs explanation. So to kind of give you an illustration of what I'm trying to say in terms of approach, if I were to tell you that I want to talk about all the problems that I have in my marriage this morning, for one, you would say, well, that's incredibly inappropriate. But for two, if we did that, you would have a false impression that when you left after we talked about all the problems in my marriage, you would have the impression that my marriage had a lot of problems and not a lot of good. But see, that, that can only be understood in the context of the, the really awesome marriage that I, in fact, do have. And I think the same thing about the Bible. If we were just to sit here and talk about, well, let's talk about this presumed error and this presumed error and try to fend off all of those attacks, then what we would be left with would be the sense that the Bible was riddled with holes when that's actually not true at all. And so I want to take the approach that there is an amazing unity to the Bible that has to be appreciated and in fact has to be explained. This year our theme is revisiting the foundations, how we keep going back to some of the first principles of the gospel. And we spent most of the first part of the year talking about Jesus and revisiting the truths about Jesus. And this section, I've told you last month, we've started a section where we're talking about the Bible. We talked about translation last month. This morning, we're going to talk about unity and presumed errors. Next month, my plan is to talk about the canon and who decided which books are in the Bible. We're going to talk about that next month. That's the plan. Plans change, but that's my plan for next month. So what can we say about the amazing unity of the Bible? First of all, I want to talk about the fact that the Bible has unity of fact, that is, the Bible tells a consistent story, and that's pretty amazing because the Bible was not written by one man. 
It is not a book like the Koran or a book like the Book of Mormon that you can chalk up to one author who traced a story from one linear point to another. But it is rather the compilation of a number of authors who lived in a number of places at different points in time. So the fact that their facts agree, the fact that you can look at the Bible and come out with a complete story is impressive because there is a staggering amount of historical material in the Bible. So that unity of fact by itself demands some explanation. But I want us to see that to understand that there is unity of fact in the Bible, we're going to need some tools as we approach Scripture and approach some of the presumed problems in Scripture. I want you to go with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Actually, I want Genesis 1 first, and then we'll get to Genesis 2. Genesis chapter 1. So one of the major presumed errors that most of these folks who go through these things talk about are things where it appears that one passage directly contradicts another shortly after it. And this is one situation where that appears to happen. In Genesis 1 and verse 26, the text says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So here is the account of God creating man on the sixth day of creation. And then when you, when you move into chapter 2, in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 4, it says, Genesis four, 2 and verse 4, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there are several presumed discrepancies here, but I think as you sort of work through this, you can see some of how we can understand unity of fact in the Bible. First of all, it is not a linear story. Did you notice? In chapter 1, God made man, and in chapter 2, God made man again. So it's not a story. That's not the way we would write a story. In modern America, it's not the way the Western mind works, where we would say chapter 2 follows chapter 1. You've got to pick up the story where it is. You don't retell the story from before. So that's part of the issue, that sometimes we need to understand the Bible makes points and explains by repetition and restatement. And that's what happens here. The other part is that in the second account, in chapter 2, there appear to be no plants. In verse 5, it says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. And then in verse 9, God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the side and good for food. And that would contradict the chapter 1 account where you have plants made before man is made on a different day. But that's actually not so. What's happening in chapter 2 is different from what's happening in chapter 1. What's happening in chapter 2 is he is describing how man is going to be changed by what happens in the Garden of Eden. So when he talks about in verse 5, no bush of the field, no small plant of the field, and there's no man to work the ground, turn the page to chapter 3 and verse 18, where it says... Chapter 3 and verse 18, in the curse of Adam, it says, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So he's saying, now there were no small plants and no plants of the field, yet 
Because man hadn't sinned yet, that's going to be a part of the penalty for his sin where he's cast out of the Garden of Eden. The other part of the story in this chapter 2 and chapter 1 problem is that in chapter 1 there is no record of how God made man or how God made woman. It does not describe him as dust of the earth. It does not say how God formed him from dust. It does not say how God created females which is going to be explained in chapter 2 where he takes part of the rib of Adam and makes uh, fashions a woman. And in chapter 2 we learn that man is a part of the creation, that he is made in the image of God, chapter 1, but that he is made from the earth, chapter 2. You need both of those things to understand the nature of man. So here's what we have. We have something that might look on casual observation like a contradiction, but in reality it is an explanation that adds and fills in gaps. And that's the way a lot of the Bible works. That's the way the Bible works when you read the story of the ten plagues or the story of David and Saul. How there are pieces where you say, well, I wonder what happened here. I wonder how that works. We're going to have to move things around and try to fit them together because they don't write the way modern historians would write. However, when you get done with all of that, you have to say there is a unified story that makes a lot of sense. And that adds up to all of these things working together. So sometimes what I'm trying to get at is to find unity of fact, we're going to have to try. We're going to have to try. If I were to say, what are the rules of discovering and resolving presumed errors and contradictions of the Bible? Number one is you have to try. I have read through these lists, and a lot of them have passages where you're not even trying to make them work together. But if you try to make things work together, they make sense. I want to show you another one that's like that. Let's go to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at a, a pair of passages that are the genealogies of Jesus. I remember at a very young age reading about the genealogies of Jesus and seeing, I mean, it doesn't take a lot to see that these are very different. Trying to compare the two and try to figure out what exactly is going on with his genealogies. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 2. Matthew 1 and verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, and on he goes. In verse 16 he says, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Adam to da uh, Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So a couple of notable things before we leave this text. Jacob is the father of Joseph. And Matthew is careful to outline 14 generations in each era. From Abraham to David, from David to the captivity, and from the captivity to Jesus. 14 generations in each. Now turn over to Luke chapter 3, where you see the other genealogy of Jesus. Luke chapter 3 and verse 23 Luke 3 and verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, son of Matthew, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph. Drop down to verse 31. Verse 31 says, the son of Malia, the son of Menah, the son of Metatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. And then verse 38, uh, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So you see, this lineage is very different from Matthew's lineage. For one, it's backwards. Instead of starting at the top and coming down to the present day, it starts at the present day and goes back all the way to the beginning, to Adam, the son of God. 
Luke says Joseph's father, uh, Joseph's father is Heli. Remember, Matthew said Joseph's father was Jacob. What do we do with this? So what do you do when you have genealogies that don't match up, and particularly ones that are important because they have to do with Jesus? Well, for one, I want to point out that the narrative in Matthew is focused on Joseph. You remember Matthew chapter 1, Joseph is concerned, what do I do with Mary? She's turned up pregnant. It's not my child. And he is reassured by the angel. It talks about how Joseph took the family and was warned in a dream to go to Egypt and is warned he could come back. That, that Joseph is very much the main character in the first chapters of Matthew. Luke is very different. In Luke 1, we have the story of Mary and about how Mary sees an angel and how Mary and Elizabeth talk about their, their children. And throughout Luke 1 and Luke 2, there is a focus on Mary, how Mary treasured all these things in her heart. So it appears to me that what we might have would be genealogies of the two different parents of Jesus. One being Joseph's genealogy in Matthew and one being Mary's genealogy here in Luke. Now, what that would mean would be instead of Joseph in Luke chapter 3, you would actually be talking about Mary. Although sometimes in genealogies, women are not mentioned at all. So just the men would be mentioned and perhaps Joseph and the, the line of Mary is traced through Joseph. And it says even as he was supposed to be the father of Jesus. So it appears to me that there's at least the possibility that we've got two different lines because Jesus had two parents, one of them being sort of his presumed parent and one of them being his actual mother. So here is my point. Genealogies are very different from the way we would do genealogies today. And that is true whenever you find a genealogy in the Bible. If we were to do a genealogy, we were to go to Ancestry.com or something like that, we wouldn't just decide to skip five generations. We wouldn't say, well, I only care about every 14th one, right? We would, we would want the numbers, we would want the facts, we would want it all. That's the way we think. That is not the way biblical genealogies are presented. We know for a fact that Matthew skips several people in his genealogy to get to the 14s. Now, we know that because we have those genealogies and we know who goes in the, in the gaps. So the question has to be, not did they get it wrong, but why did they present it the way they did? We have to try to reconcile these things and then we'll find unity of fact. Let's go to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. I want to talk for a moment about the Gospels here. In Mark 5... There is this scene beginning in verse 1. It says, They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So you have this story where you have this awful demon-possessed man who is just having a terrible time because this demon is particularly strong. We actually learn it's a number of demons. So you have an awful situation. When you go to Matthew, you have a very different situation because Matthew says there were two demon-possessed men. Two. So what do we do with that? Is Mark right or is Matthew right? Well, you see, there is room for us to say, well, where there is one demon-possessed man, there might be two. It might be that there was one who was the main one and another one who was sort of off to the side. 
It could be that Mark is focused on the one that's the major demon-possessed man. There is room for us to understand those accounts together and there to be unity of fact. Just because there is one doesn't mean there's not two. The Gospels are important, though, in this way. Uh, Because as you read the Gospels, you have four accounts of essentially the same story. And that's a very interesting, well, can present some interesting problems, and it also provides some interesting information. Because if we were to have four different biographies of a person, let's say you go have a major figure like JFK, and you were to say, I want to buy four biographies, what would you expect from those four biographies? You would expect that there would be some things that all four biographies would have in them. Some events, some speeches, some words, quotations that would all be in them. And then you would expect in all four of those biographies there to be some some unique material that each one of those researchers had come up with on their own. Maybe one's going to focus more on this aspect of JFK's life. One's going to focus more on his presidency. One's going to focus on his past. Whatever it is. You would expect there to be agreement, but you would also expect there to be a wide variety of some disparate information as well. But if you want to put it all together, you usually can. That is the point of having four. So I believe the Gospels are a special blessing in that way. If they agreed in all their details exactly, then we would say, well, this can't be. It had to be copied from each other. But since they sometimes have things that have, we have to work to harmonize, sometimes people will criticize that and say, well, they don't all agree. But it appears to me that what we have is a blessing because it adds a sense of there is unity despite the fact that there is tremendous diversity and opportunity for things to be confused. Well, before we finish with unity of fact, I want to talk for just a moment about numbers in the Bible. Sometimes numbers in the Bible don't match up. So here's an example. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 8, Paul writes, We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. He is referring to a scene in which they compromised with Baal of Peor, and they began to commit sexual immorality, and God struck them dead. But in Numbers 25, this scene, nevertheless, it says those who died by the plague were 24,000. So you see I've underlined the difference, 23,000 and 24,000. So what do we do with that? Well, it is possible, if you look at that text, it's possible that the focus is here, they fell in a single day, that maybe what he is saying is he knew about something that happened on that one day, that 23,000 fell on that one day, whereas Numbers is talking about the whole plague. That's possible. Or it could be that Paul simply made a mistake in the number as he remembered it, that he is talking about the situation rather than the exact number that was the important thing. That is possible. The number is different, though. I, I, I have to say, though, as I thought about this, if I were to have an opportunity to talk to Paul, and I were to sit Paul down and say, Paul, when you wrote this, did you really mean 24,000? I honestly believe, this is just Jacob's opinion, so take it for what it's worth. I honestly believe that Paul would look me in the eye and say, I meant don't commit sexual immorality. That's what I meant. It appears to me that we would be grossly negligent if we focus on Paul's number and miss Paul's message. That, I believe, is the point, more than 23 or 24,000 who die. Now, there is a handful of passages in 
Kings and Chronicles that don't match up. Numbers in those books. Uh, this is a, an example. Uh, this is 2 Chronicles 9.25. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses. And then 1 Kings 4.26, Solomon had 40,000 stalls for horses. That's a big difference. So what do we do with things like that, discrepancies like that? So I want to give you a handful of possibilities. Uh, one is it's possible that these are scribal errors. So when the Old Testament was copied, it was copied by men. And sometimes the numerical system might have been challenging for them. They might have copied it wrong, making a minor mistake by adding a word. You can see how even in English, which, by the way, they, weren't, they did not copy and write in the Bible in numbers. They wrote the words out. So you can see, though, even in our language, 4,000 and 40,000 is a difference of just a couple of letters. Uh, and that might be part of what explains that. It could be that there are different methods of reckoning something or different objects uh, that sometimes help with these discrepancies, although I have to say, I don't think that's true with stalls. Uh, it's not as if, you know, you might miss 36,000 stalls. Uh, that, to me, is a, is a big difference. Uh, sometimes the differences can be explained by rounding, uh, that something is not as specific in one case and it's more specific in another. So we would say, you know, rough numbers. Uh, that doesn't really help us here. Uh, there could be other explanations that I just haven't thought about. Uh, that I just don't know of. But here is what I want to stress. I, I want to be honest about the fact that sometimes there are numbers and things in the Bible that I can't exactly explain why they don't match up. And I want to be honest about that. Now, that doesn't mean that there is no explanation. It just means I haven't thought of one. There are going to be some that I cannot satisfactorily account for, for you or for me. But that has to be taken in the context of what we have in the Bible, which is a tremendous unity of fact. So if there are these problems, these minor difficulties, they certainly do not overshadow the amazing fact of unity in the Bible, which still has to be accounted for, even if you might say that somehow the stalls of Solomon had some different sense. But I have to say, as I look through these lists of uh, presumed errors and discrepancies and things, that really wasn't where most of them spent their time. Most of the presumed errors and contradictions have to do with morality and the nature of God. So I just want to say a few words about these things. Not only is there unity of fact in the Bible, there is unity of moral instruction in the Bible. Now, what happens in the Bible is as you open it, in the beginning, there is a staggering amount of moral instructions, things that you should do and should not do. And when believers read that and when non-Christians read that, it is challenging for them. For example, this is Exodus 21, 15 to 17. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. And so when people read that, especially people who are not Christians, they say, whoa, that's what the Bible is like? So you do this and you get put to death and everybody's getting put to death. And there's so many things you're going to do, you got to do it just right or you're going to be put to death. So... That is hard for some people to swallow. It kind of sounds like a vigilante justice, especially when you don't realize that those are intended to be justice system pronouncements. I remember, just to illustrate how challenging this can be, I remember being in college. And when I was in college, there was a debate about homosexuality. And I remember someone writing into the student newspaper. And in the letters to the editor section, they wrote, 
homosexuality is an abomination to God because of Leviticus 18. And then someone else wrote in and said, you realize that that's the same book, Leviticus, that has all of these ridiculous things that you would never say are wrong. I don't remember the specifics. I just remember saying, of course. Because it's really hard for us to say, well, this thing is wrong and I've got to stand up against this. And then in the same breath, if you turn the page to Leviticus 19, you have things like don't wear clothes with mixed fibers. And you have things like don't let cattle breed with other kinds. It's just hard for us to, well, what exactly are we supposed to do? And so as we talk about the idea of a unity of moral instruction, I want to give a few words about that. First of all, the Bible teaches that the Jewish people during most of the Old Testament period were under the law of Moses. And their moral instruction came through that law. Christians, though, are not under Moses' law. And that is the reason we do not keep the moral instructions or the ceremonial instructions of the law of Moses. We don't keep the Sabbath. We don't insist on circumcision. We don't sacrifice animals. We don't keep kosher. Those kinds of things are not a part of what we do, even though they were part of the law of Moses. And many of the moral instructions of the Old Testament are not our law today. That's what I'm trying to say. But because the law of Moses and the teachings of Jesus were both given by the same God, there is unity between them. Let me explain what I mean. This is Leviticus 19 and verse 2. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel. Say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be holy, he says. Holiness has the idea of, of being separate, of being pure. Particularly, there are sexual connotations to holiness. And that is what God expects of his people because he is holy, because he is different, because he is pure. You are to be like him. You come to the New Testament. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, which is another word for your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. God expected holiness all the way back in Leviticus. And then a millennium or so later, he still expects holiness in a totally different era from different people. Now, the way that's going to look might be a little different, but there is unity of moral instruction in the Bible. This is Leviticus 19 and verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus quotes that verbatim and says, this is the expectation for my people. Paul does too and says, this is the debt we all owe. We could keep going about unity of moral instruction. Honesty is a virtue in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The idea of anger leading to murder is in Genesis chapter 4. It's in the beginning. Remember Cain and Abel? in the very beginning, and then it continues through the law of Moses, it continues into the time of Christ. The unity is so remarkable. I don't know if we process this. Please hear me. New Testament authors cite Old Testament characters to teach about morality. We do that. You know, I did that this morning. I talked about David. David does not keep the law I keep. David lived thousands and thousands of years ago in a totally different culture and time. And yet, the way he lived is an example to us today. How can we do that? 
the only reason we could possibly study and learn from characters from a law that's not even our law is because there is a unity of moral instruction. So in spite of the fact that there are different dispensations, if you want to call them that, different eras, different laws, there is a unity of moral instruction. And I especially want to say, there is something in the Bible that teaches us that when we are left to our own devices, in whatever time we live in, we make huge mistakes that make wrecks of our lives. That happened with Adam and Eve. That happened with Cain and Abel. That happened at the Tower of Babel. That happened in the life of Abraham and all his descendants. That happened throughout the law of Moses. That happened in the era of the Christians. That happens today because that is a truth of life. And always, always God teaches us to have this moral awareness that what we do matters, that we need to make right decisions, that we need to show our honor for him in the things we do and do not do. There is unity of moral instruction in the Bible that is amazing. And finally, there is unity about God's character and God's priorities. Have you thought about this? As many authors are, as there are for the, in the Bible, wouldn't we expect them to have different views of God? Just think about, just if you were to poll your friends who all live in 2018, wouldn't you expect them to have different views of God? Isn't it amazing that people who lived, some of them in Babylon, some of them in Israel, some of them far-flung throughout the, the Greek Roman Empire, the Greek world, isn't it amazing that they all thought the same way about God? In fact, I think it's so amazing that it, it needs an explanation. Unity about God's character. So, here's what I mean. God has always wanted to live in relationship with man, always. In the Garden of Eden, he wanted it. In the tabernacle, in the temple, in the pillar of cloud and fire in Israel, he has always wanted to live with his people. The promise is that he now lives in us through his spirit. And the promise is that someday we will live with him forever. Always God has wanted this from the beginning to the end of the Bible. Always sin has been a problem, an impediment to that fellowship that we have with God. Always, from the very beginning to the very end of the Bible. Always. And God has always acted so that there is a path to that fellowship for man. Always, from the beginning of the Bible to the end. The very beginning, as soon as man sins, what does God say? He says, there will be one, the seed of woman, who will crush the head of the serpent. God has always been working in human events to bring about his purposes. And the Bible tells us that even though the Bible is written by so many different people in so many different times. How God acts out his priorities and his character. But I want to say this because there appears to me to be, even among Christians, this perception that God is different in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. That the God of the Old Testament is harsh and vengeful, and so we'll talk about Uzzah, and we'll talk about Achan, and we'll talk about the Canaanites, and he was brutal. And then we'll talk about the New Testament, and we'll say, oh, but in the New Testament, God's all about love and Jesus, and everything's great. And it seems to me that we are really distorting the biblical witness when we say that, when we think that way. Because the Old Testament paints a picture of a God who is a merciful God, and the New Testament paints a picture of a God who is also a God of judgment. Both of those things are true because it's the same God from beginning to end. 
This is how God talks about himself. This is Exodus 34. As he reveals himself to the children of Israel, he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation. This is who God is. You see the two sides of God. This may be part of our problem is we don't want to look at both sides of God. There is the side that is merciful, and so much of this is about God's mercy and his faithfulness and his steadfast love. But then there is also the side that when we are guilty before God, we will, if we refuse to come to God and come out of our sin, we will be judged. And that is the message of God, that is the character of God throughout Scripture. But I want to show you the goodness of God in the Old Testament. This is what Micah says about God. Micah is an Old Testament prophet. He says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That's the God of the Old Testament. Hosea sees in this way, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. God's angry, but God's forgiving. Do you see it? Do you remember Jonah? Jonah knew this about God so well that it made him mad. And he said, I don't want to go preach to those people in Nineveh because I know you're going to forgive them. I don't want you to forgive them. He says... That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He says, and I want disaster for them. They deserve it. Jonah was angry that God was so merciful. So if we're going to come to the Old Testament and say God was brutal and harsh and that God never had mercy on anyone, we're going to have to distort the record. That's not what the Old Testament says. The Old Testament has a different picture of God. I want you to go with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans 11. There is also in the New Testament a picture of God that includes judgment. Jesus talks about judgment. Jesus is the one who talks about hell. There is a description that if we are not going to accept what God has done for us, then we will suffer and die for our own sins. Romans chapter 11. Let me explain the image here before we read this. In Romans 11, Paul is describing how God allowed the Jews who refused to believe in Jesus to be cut off from his tree. The branches cut off of the olive tree. And then Gentiles were allowed to be grafted in because they believed. And so he pictures it all as an olive tree that is God's fellowship. This is how he describes it in verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. The, the kindness and severity of God. That's what we're talking about. Kindness and severity in the beginning. 
Kindness because God is willing to forgive and show grace. But severity because when we refuse to obey God, when we refuse to submit to God, there is punishment, there is judgment. That has always been true of God. That was true in the very beginning. That was true in the very end of the Bible. And isn't it amazing that a character as complex and unique as God is the same throughout the Bible when so many different men are the ones writing it? If we are writing the Bible, if we're just making it up, isn't there a temptation to make God more like what I want? To make God a little more vengeful toward my enemies? To make God a little more compassionate toward me? And yet the biblical authors consistently show God's character and God's priorities. My question is how do we account for the amazing unity of the Bible? I believe it has to be accounted for. We've got to make a decision about this. This came from somewhere. It is not enough for us to say, well, the Bible claims to be from God, but I think it might have an error here, so I don't have to believe it. You still have to say, well, where did it come from then? How do you make sense of what it does say? It is a challenge to us. How do we account for the agreement in the Bible that it makes a coherent story about God creating and then losing and then coming to redeem his people? How do we account for the power that it has and has always had to change people's lives? How do we account for it? Some people say, in accounting for the unity of the Bible, they say that what the Bible is is really just the product of a composite of Jewish culture. And the Jews just wrote it, and this is sort of their, their, their best, the best they could do as a culture, is they came up with these statements about God. And I am suggesting to you that the naturalistic explanation fails to account for the unity of the Bible. It's not good enough. See, why would Jewish people just happen to get all their facts straight? Why would the Jewish people just happen to think the same way about God all the time over the centuries and millennia? Why is it that the Jewish people just happen to pick their pens up and continue the story as if it had never stopped? What are the odds of that? And why would this book have such a tremendous impact on the world? Why is it that it would resonate the way it does across cultures? Why is it that the Jewish worldview, the worldview of a people who has never been a dominant empire or a cultural heavyweight, would suddenly be so important that the whole world sees its beauty and value? Why? I began by saying that the Bible claims to be from God. Could it be that the simplest explanation is the best one? That the Bible is what it claims to be? That is what I have come to believe. That the Bible is the story of a God who is able to inspire people to write what he chooses in their own time, and to make those things work together and agree so that he can appeal to men, so that he can achieve his purposes and reveal himself to man. That is what I have come to believe. In my view, it is by far the best explanation 
for what you hold in your hands. But one way or another, we have to make our choice about what this book is. Where did it come from? What does it mean? And I want to encourage you as you do, don't just try to poke holes in the Bible. There is place and there is a room for us to look carefully at the text of the Bible and see if it agrees with itself. But don't forget, whatever you might say about that, there is something amazing here that demands your attention. And if this book is what it claims to be, the Word of God, then it speaks about a Creator who demands your allegiance, who says, I made you, you've strayed from me, and you need to come back. The good news of the Gospel of Jesus is that He has sent His Son to reach out to us and to die on the cross for us. And so if you want this morning to take that step to reach out to Him, to come back to Him and to submit yourself to Him, We want to offer you the invitation, this time that we have set aside to sing a song to encourage you to give your life over to the Lord. And if you're ready to be baptized into Christ, or if there's something that we can do to help you to be right with God, we invite you.